0: reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 to 9. In chapter 15 Paul spent a lot of time describing the richnesses and the hope that comes from the resurrection and in this chapter he now turns to some more pragmatic matters and giving us a really great glimpse of what the relationship he has is like with the Corinthian church. Now about the collection of the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have been will have, be, have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you have approved and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend, time, spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me. And there are, many, there are many who oppose me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, three years ago
1: in 2019, Peter Tasker was the uh, acting rector. And um, he kicked us off in a series in uh, 1 Corinthians. And we've been dipping in and out of that book now for three years. And today's a momentous day. We're going to finish that book. Now, that gives us a moment to kind of reflect upon what, what is an epistle or a letter? And, and how actually should we read this particular part of Scripture? I, I think we tend to approach this whole question of what is the Bible uh, on, on one kind of continuum. And the continuum goes something like this. Um, uh, o- over this conservative side, we sort of say, okay... The Bible is inspired it 's the word of god it's um, it's truth uh um, god 's word abides forever uh and and it's a good source of instruction about about life uh, on the other side we might kind of call this the more progressive or liberal side it 's sort of like oh it's inspiring and um, it's uh traditional um, stories that kind of have accumulated wisdom um, and uh, there's there's truths that have kind of stood the test of time, but these truths are kind of perhaps more metaphorical rather than literal. Well, we would tend to be more down this end of the spectrum as an evangelical church, although we're not perhaps right at the fundamentalist end, um, and we tend to use Scripture a little bit like you might use the Encyclopedia Botanica at home where you kind of go and have a look at the shelf and you sort of say, hang on a sec, Uh, what's the deal on this topic or this topic, right? Or or perhaps like a lawyer uses uh, their case study books of law. You know, so what does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about one Christian taking another Christian to court? And if you wanted to know answers to those type of questions, well, you go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Or... What are the spiritual gifts? Um, And and again, you would go to 1 Corinthians if you were exploring these sorts of questions. Well, I want to say to you, that's not bad. It's certainly better than kind of the mythological approach to the Bible. But I think... um, Sorry, it doesn't work when I use this. I'm just going to say next slide. Uh, I think a better approach would be to be conscious that Paul is writing a letter and he's writing it as a particular person who knows another group of people that he's writing to and he's writing it at a a specific moment in history. You see, Paul actually planted the church in Corinth. He, um, He was in Corinth on his second missionary journey and he stayed there for about a year and a half. Next slide and um, he uh, will know all the members of that congregation. Uh, He's the founding pastor. And whilst he's been on this third missionary journey, he's hearing some feedback about things that are happening in Corinth that he's not happy with. There's some problems there, and he wants to deal with those. In the meantime, some people have come from the church at Corinth across to Ephesus, and they've kind of said, Paul... What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Is this right? Is this right? What do we do? And so there's a number of questions. Questions about communion, questions about divorce and marriage, um, singleness. Um, questions about eating meat sacrifice to idols, questions about the resurrection. And so Paul continues to be the apostle from a distance who exercised his apostleship through writing letters. Now, I find that kind of fascinating, right? Because we've just had a couple of years where some of my ministry has been exercised through the internet and through emails. And so maybe there's actually a bit of a precedent for that, more so than what we uh, appreciate. Anyway, uh, here's Paul, next slide. Uh, And we're going to jump into chapter 16. And it's a little bit like, you know how you've got a structure and then... At the end, you just kind of chuck in all of these leftovers. Um, That's what's kind of happening in chapter 16. It's a mixed bag. And we just read it out, right? And initially, Paul talks about finances. Do what I told the Galatian church to do. He's not just picking on the Corinthians. It seems to be a pattern of Paul to talk about finances. And in particular, he's raising a collection for Jerusalem. Um, And he says, set aside Uh, A particular amount of money. So next slide. Uh, Let me highlight a couple of things. Firstly, the reality of churches in the first century and in the 21st century and in every century in between is that we have financial responsibilities. We have to pay the power bill, we have wages to pay and we have obligations beyond the local church. And so talking about finances is something that Paul does in lots of his letters. It just kind of comes up in the course of his ministry. I think sometimes we can kind of think, oh, church is spiritual, right? And, and so we've got to deal with you know, sin and grace and forgiveness. And, and, and then every year maybe we've got to have an awkward money talk and then we can get back to our kind of core business. Well, that's not how Paul views money. It's a matter of Christian discipleship and it turns up not infrequently in his conversation. Secondly, I want you to notice that Paul affirms the pattern of tithing. If you've come to church for a while, you'll know there's a debate amongst Christians about tithing. Is it this Old Testament pattern or does it apply in the New Testament as well? some people say it does some people will say oh we're under grace not works we don't need to tithe i think this passage could perhaps be paul's clearest affirmation of tithing and he says this on the first day of every week each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income on the first day it's first fruits just like in the old testament and it's a percentage And we don't know the percentage, but we would presume a tenth, a tithe. And here is Paul reaffirming a pattern that the Jews would be used to practicing. Actually, I think Jesus does exactly the same. In Matthew 23, he's talking about the Pharisees. And he says, uh, you guys, you give a tenth of your spices, the tiny little ones. You're you're counting out the mint and the cumin and the dill. um, And yet you've neglected... The weightier matters, is how the King James used to translate that verse. Um, And he says at the end, you should have practiced the latter. Be just, be merciful, be faithful, but don't stop the former. Jesus also assumes that the ongoing practice of tithing, ought to be done by the Pharisees, by the New Testament Christians. I mean he says in Mark seven, for instance, you know, the food laws are going to come to an end. And here Jesus is in the realm of tithing, and he doesn't say it's going to end, he actually affirms that you should continue this practice. So friends, there's an encouragement to you. I trust that you are giving your first fruits to God and that you are setting aside an amount in account in relationship to your income. And for those of you that are, thank you. And uh, of recent, uh, after the warden spoke, we've been meeting budget again, and that's fantastic. All right. The third thing we notice here about what Paul says about money is that he's having a collection for somewhere else. Churches have a responsibility not just for their own internal matters, but actually for other churches, for the poor and for mission elsewhere. And so again, I just want to affirm that as a pattern that you ought to be practicing. Uh, are you giving to God's work beyond the reach of Dapto Anglican Church? Uh, we don't necessarily give out of our centralized money. Um, we assume that you will give your free will offerings over and above your tithes. I do. Uh, and so let me commend that to you. All right, so Paul says something about money. And then he transitions to questions of timing. Uh, He's actually in Ephesus, and the Corinthians know he's coming, but he hasn't turned up yet. And this is what Paul says, After I travel through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. He could have sailed across, but he says, no, I'm walking the long way around the top, because there's a bunch of churches up there. Um, Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or I might even stay the winter in Macedonia. He's not sure yet. So you can help me on my journey. For I don't want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you. Uh, Next slide. Uh, If the Lord permits. Fascinating, isn't it? And why is he staying in Ephesus? Because a great door for effective work has opened to him. What strikes me about that little paragraph is just kind of the tentativeness of Paul's plans. I'm hoping, I'm planning, if the Lord opens. Next slide. There's just something, uh, it's not fixed. It's fluid. And and Paul appears to be waiting for whether or not God's going to open a door. So Paul is in, here's a map for you just to help you out, he's in Ephesus which is in modern day Turkey and he says, see I'm going to walk around the top through Macedonia, which we would call modern day Greece, although my son-in-law is a Maso and he's going to tell you, no, 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 that's still Macedonia, the Greeks stole it. Um, uh, and then he's going to walk down the coast into Corinth and across to Athens, right? So that's where Paul's going. Next slide. Next um, slide. I'm struck by this fluidity of Paul's plans. And and I think why that unsettles me is because we love structure and certainty and plans. We said we're going to do this, so let's do it. And we've got something booked in and something locked in and our minds are set on that. And we think that that's the result of good organisation and good planning. There's a saying, you know, uh, don't make your plans and ask God to bless them. Have a look at what God's blessing and adjust your plans. And I think the latter is closer to what Paul does. And perhaps the former is more what we like. Next slide. Um, we tend to love things being fixed and certain and structured. But, uh, I said about uh, a month or two ago that we were considering opening a fruit and veg uh, co-op up because lots of people are struggling uh, with costs of living going up. And there will be people in West Apto who will have the mortgage blues. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity for us to kind of engage uh, with a segment of the community. Uh, And we looked around and we discovered some other churches are doing this. We thought, cool, this could work. We've since gone and talked to a number of grocers, one face-to-face, we've rung lots of them up, um, I won't tell you the names of the grocers, um, but they're, they're biggest places around town, and none of them have gotten back to us. It's kind of frustrating. And there's a part of me that kind of thinks, oh, this is, this is not a good look. I'm going to stand up in front of church, and, and I've floated an idea, and now I'm going to have to say, oh, we can't pull it off, I'm sorry. The larger part of me says, actually, if God isn't opening this door, then I take it as good an idea as it might seem to me, maybe it's not the right time and God's going to open up another opportunity. Guidance is complex, isn't it? Let me make it a bit more complex for you. Next slide. Uh, Because what Paul actually does is he finally makes it around to Corinth... And it's an awkward difficult visit he later calls it a painful visit there's a breakdown in relationship a misunderstanding that persists after paul leaves and he needs to write another letter and go back again to try and heal and mend the broken relationships and often we think to ourselves oh god was in this because it went well but here we have an instance of god wanting paul to go and minister in Corinth, and yet the initial response to that is difficult. So, if you find discerning God's will a challenge, you're not alone. It's a complex business. But, be open, be tentative in your plans. Look for what God's doing and don't even assume that just because it's a challenge, perhaps God's not somewhere in it still. All right, so Paul says something about his timing. Uh, Then we jump to another section, kind of like a a transition again, that's quite common at the end of uh, pretty much all of Paul's uh, visits, uh, letters, sorry. Next slide. Um, And I won't read it to you, read it at home this afternoon, but uh, he says, you know, look, I I want to come. I can't get there yet. Instead, I'm going to send Timothy. Uh, Timothy's kind of like, you know, his uh, favorite son in ministry. He's also saying, I think I'll send Apollos. That's kind of interesting because Apollos is one of the people that some people follow. Uh, That's one of the problems in the church. There's factionalism. I like Apollos. I like Peter. I like Paul. Uh, I I want to follow their teaching and their leadership. Um, But Paul's prepared to send Apollos back. Um, And now we meet some other people, Stephanus. Stephanus is probably the person who's bringing the questions. Paul, what do you think about divorce? What do you think about what we should do at communion? What do you think about uh, the resurrection? Um, and, And he is one of the first converts in what we would now call Greece. Next slide. And we read a little bit more about Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because when they arrive, they, they travel around and visit Paul, or they travel across the sea. We don't know which way. Um, they refresh Paul's spirit as he hears about the ministry that's happening. Uh, maybe 11, 12 years ago, there was a couple of missionaries that went out from my church in Tasmania with CMS. We had them over for lu- for lunch a couple of weeks ago. And it refreshed our spirit to hear about the work that God had done through them. Isn't that true? When you catch up with ministry people and you hear about God's work in places, it just is life-giving. Well, Paul experiences that. And I think we're... uh, Sorry, the last line too. The churches in the province of Asia... So what we would call Turkey, there's a whole swag of churches there. They're all sending their greetings to this church in Corinth. So I think what we're learning here is that ministry is about growing people. It's about people, next slide, who are becoming more and more disciples of Jesus, making other disciples. Now, you could be mistaken for thinking ministry is actually about other things. Because when you read 1 Corinthians, it sounds like it's about getting details of communion right. It's about working messy stuff out about spiritual gifts. It's about, um, you know, how do we pay the bills? It's about, um, uh, should people be going to court? What do we do about unbelievers? Uh, Yes, there's all these theological and practical discussions and debates and things that need to be kind of ironed out. But at the end of the day... The purpose of all of that activity is to make disciples who make disciples. And you know what? I think 21st century churches are even more at risk of getting distracted from our core purpose. You know, we've got a forecourt out there that we're doing some works on. And when that's finished... What are we going to do about our cafe? And, you know, there's all sorts of things that, that happen in our church that can kind of become consuming of our time and our energy. And, and that's not wrong. That's how kind of modern organisations kind of are. It's a reality of life. But we don't want to get to a situation where the tail wags the dog. If our, take your pick, I'll insert the word cafe, is not somehow growing disciples who make disciples, then we ought to shut the thing down or not restart it or change it. If, if our property, if our premises, if our ministries, if um, uh, the office and the infrastructure are not somehow making disciples who make disciples, then we've lost sight of our core business. Secondly, because ministry is about people and groups of people, that makes it both messy and fulfilling. And I need to say both. There's a bunch of messy stuff going on in this church in Corinth. There's factions. I'm for this person. I'm for this person. And we're opposed to each other. Right? Uh, There's... um, Factions between the rich and the poor. Uh, There's disputes about theological topics. Um, uh, And and there's ungodliness and people aren't sure whether or not they should include or exclude people. and, uh, And yet, there's something about being part of the body of Christ. That when you experience that sense of... Oneness of togetherness of of you have some kind of baseline assumptions and uh, a, a future direction that you share that you're heading towards. When you experience that, you kind of go, "Yeah, this is substantial," and lots of other things are fluff, bubble and froth. Church will inevitably have elements of both and we sense that as we read Paul's letter and lastly the kingdom extends beyond the local church paul is raising a collection for jerusalem the saints over in asia are sending their greetings and so whatever we're doing here in dapto is great the kingdom doesn't stop at the end of our postcode. Uh, we ought to be at times sending our greetings and sharing in ministry and celebrating with the successes of churches up the road and down the road and across the seas and, um, because the kingdom is bigger and we're part of something bigger than just us and what we happen to be doing here. All right, next slide. Um, so I, I think that kind of wraps up The book of corinthians and i just want to spend a few minutes just kind of giving my reflections about the entire letter that paul writes because it's been three years right i'm sure you can't remember all of it um so here's a few reflections for me next slide first one is and i was reading a book this week by um a guy called um i think he won christian book of the year last year Uh, and he says this he says 21st century christians tend to approach life as if somehow I define myself, I understand myself as a Christian husband, a Christian wife, a Christian parent, I'm, a, I'm being a Christian in my workplace, uh, wherever it is I'm kind of seeking to follow Jesus, so it's definitely Christian, right? Somehow, the church is meant to add value to my calling as a Christian. You know, so if the church is not helping me be a better dad or us be a better family or me be a more godly person in my workplace, then, well, maybe I better come a bit less or give a bit less or uh, think about joining another one that is going to add more value to my life. This was kind of McAlpine's point. And my response is not unfair, but I'm not sure we want to limit that observation to 21st century Christians. We could actually use that very lens of thinking about what's going wrong in Corinth. Next slide. And what do we see? People are saying, I prefer the teaching of this guy. No, this guy. No, this guy. You know, we're closer to God because his teaching is better. And there's other people who are saying, I'm free. I've been freed by Christ. and, And part of that is I can sin and I'll be forgiven. And still other people are saying, well, I've got rights as a Christian. I can eat this meat, and his theology is incorrect. So if he's offended, that's his business, but it's got nothing to do with me. I'm doing what, what, what is theologically correct, and, and I'm within my rights to do this. And still other people are um, coming to communion, and uh, it's kind of like a, almost um, you know, a drinking session over here, and these people are going home hungry. Uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, My spiritual gifts are better than yours. I've got the higher gifts. uh, And my gifts are about me uh, expressing my spirituality. And as we saw in the last couple of weeks, there's a sense in which, oh, well, if the resurrection isn't happening, that frees me up, that liberates me to eat and drink and to enjoy. And Paul is pushing against all of that, I define the church through the lens of my experience and how it impacts me. And he says they're wrong every time. Next slide. So instead, he says, it's not about which teacher you prefer. Actually, we're united in Christ. And in some ways, it's not that Jesus is a more impressive rhetorician than Apollos or... Because Jesus' message is Christ crucified. And in the first century, that's an embarrassing message. It's a shame-filled message. It's a foolish message, Paul says. So don't get excited because somehow uh, you're hanging out with the smarter, on-trend intellectual movement of the day. And he also says, yes, you are in some sense free, but in other senses you're not. Actually, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, don't sin with your body. You have obligations to Jesus because he has bought you. That's 1 Corinthians 6. Or, uh, use your freedoms to love and to serve. Rights are not things you pursue. They're not things you claim. They are things you you forego so that you can serve others, and your gifts are not given for your self-expression or your self actualization your gifts are given for your body so that they might grow to maturity. And the sense of where your life is heading has been framed by Jesus' resurrection and His Lordship and His coming again. So it's actually not all about you and your experience of church. But, rather, you belong to Jesus and to his body. And apart from him and them, you die. Well, let me just try and give you a couple of things to, uh, to meditate on this week. Next slide. So here's, here's a suggestion or two. Churches, people in churches are both... Messy and redemptive. Now, as I say that, I'm guessing what comes to you first is the messy. Oh, they are. Think of that person, and I'm thinking of this person, and some of these people over here are thinking about you. Um, uh, Yes, I I don't need to tell stories about that, right? But I also want to tell you, I'm in a funny stage of life at the moment where Probably I spend more time and maybe have closer friendships with non-Christians at the moment than I do with Christians. Uh, and you know what? <laughs> Their lives are messy, uh, and there is not this sense of hope. There is not this undergirding sense of values. There is not this sense of being part of something a movement that that Jesus is sweeping across all of history. There's not this redemptive, life-giving spirit that's at work in that community in the same type of way. And when you experience that, when you're part of that, that's a beautiful moment. Anticipate both. Don't be surprised when you encounter a bit of messiness But be asking yourself, God, how are you working through some of this brokenness to transform me and other people to bring about your purposes? Secondly, don't think to yourself, uh, this is McAlpine's point, right? Uh, I'm a Christian and my church serves me, although uh, I hope you are blessed by coming to church. Um, But uh, think instead, in Christ, I'm a member of a body. That's my identity. I'm but a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear and I need the other parts of the body because without them, I'm, I'm useless, I'm nothing and, and they have strengths that I don't have and unless all of us are one body and we're somehow all connected into Jesus, then, well, what good is a hand by itself? Third Messy churches, like the Corinthian one, are God's chosen vehicle for reaching cities. Isn't that kind of scary? What's God's plan to reach Corinth? It's this church with factions, with tribalism, with ungodliness... Some of them even doubt the resurrection. Man, we would excommunicate those people if they came to our church. And yet, that is God's chosen strategy for reaching Corinth. And what's God's chosen strategy for reaching Dapto? It's a motley crew like us, with messiness, And brokenness but with the Spirit of God doing his redemptive work and just it's a joy and a delight to be a part of what God is doing and to see his kingdom touching lives in DAPTO we're going to come to communion now and 1 Corinthians is also the place where classically we go for communion and we normally start in chapter 11 at verse 23. But I'm going to go just a couple of verses before that and you will hear again the themes of what we've been covering today. In the following directives I have no praise for you. Paul's answering the questions that Stephanus has brought. For your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch! Do you ever come to church and think, I didn't get much out of church today. Imagine if Paul turned up and then afterwards he came to our worship planning meeting on Monday and said, your meetings do more harm than good. That's what Paul says about the church at Corinth. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions amongst you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So some factions are saying we're more godly than what you are because of whatever reasons. So then, when you come together and you think you're having communion, it's actually not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. That's what's happening after their communion. The poor people go home hungry and some of the rich people go home drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? You're rubbing salt into the wounds. The poor go home hungry after church, having watched you get drunk. Shall I praise you in this? Certainly not in this matter. Churches can be messy and broken places. And before we come to communion, it's a good time to repent. The Corinthians had to. Paul says that in chapter 10. And so I'm going to invite us to do that now. Well, we've just heard what, whatever's going on at Corinth and it sounds awful. Um, but we're also conscious that there's some messiness and brokenness in our church and there's some messiness and brokenness in our hearts. There are times where we speak... And act, somehow seeking to prove that we have more of God's approval than what other people do, that we're more spiritual or more theological. There are occasions where some of us go home hungry and others go home having been gluttons. God, for these sins. We repent. We want to ask that your life-giving spirit would come and work in each of us and would transform us from the inside out. Change our desires. Refresh us, renew us. We do want to be people who give up our rights so that we can serve and bless others. We want to be people who, despite whatever we can see as an eye, we want to celebrate what the ear hears, and where the foot walks, and what the hand serves. Make us a body that is one in spirit and one in Christ. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.